TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com. On the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. And welcome back to Overnight America. I'm your host, Ryan Recker. And joining us is an award-winning journalist, author, former foreign correspondent with a new book out called When the Apricots Bloom, Gina Wilkinson. How are you? I'm great, Ryan. Thank you for having me on your show. This is exciting because you're joining us on Zoom, which uh, people, I think, could pick up the quality is much higher. And you're joining us live from Australia. What time is it there, by the way? Uh, It's actually um, just gone midday. Oh, perfect. So you're using yeah, your and lunch it's, break. And it's Friday. So um, <laughs> it's actually just my Friday afternoon. <laughs> oh, in the future. Perfect. Is this what you normally do yeah. for fun? You skip your lunch breaks to talk to radio stations? Uh, it's, it's an exciting life I live, isn't it? Well, after this, um, I actually have another interview, and then um, I'm renovating a very, very old house, so I'm going hunting for um, cornices. It's such a glamorous life. Oh, hunting for what? <laughs> Corn? I don't know if that's the American word, cornice. It's cornice. the bit that connects walls and a ceiling. Oh, the uh, mm. it's the bit that connects walls and the ceiling. So it's yeah. it's it's like the joint that would be. Uh, yeah, it's sort of decorative. It, oh, um, I, I have a feeling there might be a different word. Like molding, they, they would be called. Yes, yes, exactly. I exactly. see. Oh, so exciting! And yeah. you said you were in uh, radio. So exciting! Uh, how, what yeah, haven't you done, I, by the way? You've done just about you. You've uh, an author, journalist. Uh, you've done a million different things. Radio's one of them. Yes, um, when I started in journalism um, back in the uh, dawn of time, uh, I actually started in radio back in the days when you actually had um, a physical piece of tape and if you wanted to edit, you got out a razor blade and you sliced the tape and then you sliced it again and you taped it together. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that was what it was like, uh, you know, when I started. But by the time I, um, you know, sort of wrapped up my journalism career, it was all digital by then. Sure. So um, well, you certainly makes it a little easier to do your edits, that's for sure. Wow. So you have all kinds of great history. Uh, how did you find Australia? Is that where you grew up? Yes. Yeah. I actually grew up in a variety of very small towns in Western Australia. Um, I was born in Perth, but then um, my family uh, moved every couple of years from small town to um, small town. And I guess that sort of continued uh, into my adult life because I ended up spending 20 years outside of Australia. um, Working as a journalist and also working um, for the United Nations in um, some, you know, 
always interesting, sometimes difficult, but always interesting places. Yeah, no kidding. And part of your journalism, your reporting took you to Iraq and uh, was it Baghdad is where you were stationed? Yeah, that's correct. Actually, interestingly enough, it was not uh, my journalism that took me there. Um, if I sort of go back in time, I actually met my husband when I was living in Canada. He's a Canadian. And so he moved to Australia. Um, sort of following me. And then I was um, posted to Southeast Asia as a journalist and he followed me there. And then he was actually offered a job um, in Baghdad in 2002, um, working with UNICEF, mm -hmm. the United Nations Children's Fund. And considering he'd followed me around the world, um, we sort of thought, you know, this is probably, you know, fair enough that he has a um, shake of the stick, as we say here in Australia. And um, it may sound uh, very strange, but at that time, we were told to expect a very boring posting, mm -hmm. um, a very uneventful posting. Uh, at that time, Iraq was completely sealed off from the outside world by international sanctions. You couldn't fly in. There were no rail lines in. There were very, very few foreigners allowed into the country. And journalists were definitely on the list of people who were not allowed into the country under the dictator Saddam Hussein. Yeah. Um, but I was still sort of intrigued about the idea of going there. You know, this is a country that has been at the forefront of momentous events in history. We're talking like thousands of years ago and more modern times. And I guess the journalist in me uh, was sort of attracted to that idea of getting a behind-the-scenes look at a place where no one else um, had access to. Yeah. Uh, so we moved to Baghdad and pretty much as we were crossing the border, um, President George Bush gave his uh, well-known axis of evil speech and it soon became very clear that it wasn't going to be an uneventful posting, um, that it was actually going to be quite volatile. Um, but, you know, I was there, you know, because of my husband rather than my journalism, I sort of kept that on the back burner. And when I got there, I was um, very quickly befriended by a local woman who I later discovered was actually an informant working for Saddam Hussein's wow. um, secret police. And she was reporting back on where I went, who I met, what I did. <laughs> wow. And so that sort of um, complicated relationship was actually the inspiration um, for my book because, you know, I, I don't blame her for being an informant in Iraq at that time, if the secret police wanted you to do something, uh, you had very little room to manoeuvre. Uh, you know, saying no it could be absolutely disastrous for you, especially for someone like her who, you know, came from a pretty humble background. She had a family to protect. Um, but I, I always wondered, you know, was it just a job for her? Was it just like an unpleasant duty or were we actually friends. And, mm. you know, many, many years later, I was actually living in Washington, D.C. at that time. I was still thinking about this relationship and I decided to start writing a story. And um, it begins with the secret police arriving at the home of an Iraqi secretary who works at a foreign embassy. And they demand that she befriends her boss's wife um, in order to gain access to information. Wow. And so it was sort of that real life relationship that I had that inspired the book you know the plot in the book is fiction but certainly there are bits of of my own experience that went into it and I guess uh you know sort of questions that I would like to have had answered I wanted to explore those in the pages as well wow that is so fascinating and 
when you look at when the apricots bloom, which is the story in, in the book that people can find, but the background and the history of some of your life experiences, Gina Wilkinson joining us here on Overnight America. When you start talking about this informant, after the fact, you learn about it and you start to think back. How did you feel? But did you feel betrayed? Where did you feel manipulated? Were you a little impressed? And like, let me just point out here in the United States, some people feel that way. If someone unfollows them on Facebook, why would they <laughs> why would they uh, block me on Twitter? You know, people feel that way on social media and there's no consequence to that whatsoever. Yeah. But we're talking about someone that was a part of your life for so long and was going on, and all of these things were going on after the fact you learn about it. What were your emotions once you learned? Well, you know, we did have a pretty close um, relationship. Uh, she was a very um, friendly um, person with a great sense of humor. And, you know, I don't hold it against her. And when I found out, uh, you know, I actually wasn't surprised. Um, with most of my Iraqi friends, they were very worried about being seen with me in public because, uh, you know, it could be seen as disloyal to the regime to associate with foreigners and just being with a foreigner is going to attract the attention of the secret police and that's something that no one wanted to do. So, um, you know, we didn't, uh, I didn't go to their homes. We met, you know, at certain places actually um, in my book, I've got another central character who's an artist. And uh, that also is sort of reflected in my life because I went to a lot of art galleries. And that was often where I met my friends because Iraq has a great artistic culture. And artists, you know, for thousands of years have always played this role of connecting the outside world and the inside world. So we were able to meet in those environments without necessarily attracting as much attention as, um, say, we've been at at other places. But my friend who was an informant, she wasn't worried, obviously, about being seen with me in public. Mm -hmm. That was part of her job. Mm -hmm. um, and I was suspicious. I mentioned it to a few of my foreign friends and they told me I was paranoid. But, um, <laughs> you know, in, <laughs> in Saddam Hussein's Iraq, you could never be paranoid enough. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, <laughs> you know, when, when we uh, moved to Iraq, we got a security briefing uh, before we went in from the United Nations and they said, you know, definitely the office is bugged. Um, assume your home is also bugged. Assume your phone is bugged. You couldn't take a mobile phone into Baghdad. So we only had landlines. Um, and if we were told that if me and my husband wanted to have a private conversation to go for a walk outside, because outside there wouldn't be a um, power source there. That's what you need to have a hidden microphone. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we really got our uh, steps in in Baghdad. I guess it was good for that. <laughs> not, you know, not, not that we had any secrets. We weren't like hiding any classified information or anything like that. But sometimes you do want to have a, a con you know, a private conversation. Sure. Um, so, you know, there was always this feeling that, you know, you were being watched and, you know, I didn't know it was by one of my closest friends, but I was certainly aware of the fact that um, the regime, you know, was probably hearing everything I said. They probably knew everything I did. Um, so, you know, I wasn't so surprised when I found out. It sort of made sense to wow. tell the truth. Um, but, you know, still a complicated Yeah. Um, it is. Situation. Well, mm. when the apricots bloom, the book, if people wanted to find that, is there a good website? Oh, yeah. You can get it uh, on Amazon. You can get it at 
Target. It was actually Target's um, Book of the Month. Oh. Um, it's going to be Costco's Book of the Month, I believe, starting in May. So you'll have to hold off um, a couple of weeks there. Uh, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore, many local bookstores are carrying it. So please support, you know, your local um, stores. They add so much to our um, communities. Just if they don't have it in stock, just ask them. They can get it. Pretty much you can get it anywhere. Right. Um, and I also have a website if you're having trouble um, finding it, ginawilkinson.net. Um, and there's some buttons there you can click to grab a copy and it'll, it'll connect you with various um online sellers great gina wilkinson gina wilkinson.net we'll continue with her right after the break on overnight america kmox and she's the author of a new book when the apricots bloom you can actually find her online gina wilkinson.net gina wilkinson thank you for uh, coming on to kmox Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Live in Australia, spending your uh, lunch hour with us, which is so great. Uh, do you mind if I get some of the goofy questions out of the way? Please fire away. Okay, so to set up the first goofy question, I need to know how many countries have you actually lived in? Oh, gosh. Okay. Oh, all right. Uh, Brazil, mm -hmm. Canada, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Iraq, Jordan, or oh, Canada, America, Australia. What's that? Eight? Yeah, eight, eight that I've lived in. Yeah, you know, eight for yeah, okay. lived in eight. Okay. Yes. Does your accent change when you move? Well, you know, it does a little actually. Australians sometimes ask me if I'm American. Um, I think that's because I did spend, um, a, I think a couple years. It was a couple years in New York, and then almost six years in DC at different times. One of my kids was actually born in New York, and um, I've got a Canadian husband, so I think he rubbed off a little bit. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I I guess it moves around a bit. I got you. What's the biggest spider you've seen in Australia? Oh, gosh. Well, I think the most traumatic one was when I was a girl guide and I was on a camp and I turned on a water tap and a giant spider um, fell into my hands oh. just as, as I was about to throw water <laughs> on my face. Instead, oh, no. I threw it over my shoulder. Oh. Um, I think it was a huntsman, we call them. You uh -huh. can Google it. There's actually a... Um, a YouTube video of a uh, famous Australian huntsman spider carrying a mouse up the side of a water heater. Um, yeah, look for oh that one. Oh, my it, goodness. This thing's huge. It's the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Easily the size really... of a hand. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. whoa. These things hanging out yeah. on the wall. Um, uh, do not Google it. I'm telling anyone listening right now. <laughs> There's a whole nest well, of them in one of these photos that pop up. Oh, no thanks. Yeah, yeah, there are some very, very large spiders in Australia, but I believe it's the smaller ones you actually have to yeah. look out for. Okay, so those were the goofy ones I had to get out. I, I figure whenever we have a guest That's from it? Australia. Yeah, that's that was it about it. Goofy? I, I'll, oh. I'll, I'll think of some more. Oh, all right, yeah, sure. <laughs> so get you were, back to me with the goof. <laughs> <laughs> you, so you were telling your story and a lot of your inspiration for the book that you wrote and some of the life experiences you had while living in Iraq. And When the Apricots Bloom, you can find the book online. I, I, I was curious about your relationship with the person that was actually spying on you, reporting back to Saddam Hussein's uh, people. After the fall of Saddam, did you have any contact with them? Yeah, yeah, we still um, saw each other. Uh, you know, it was a little bit strained. Um, I'm not sure she knew that I knew she was an informant. Ah. And uh, I made a couple attempts to have that conversation. 
um, but they failed due mm -hmm. to various factors. Um, once I didn't feel safe bringing it up, another time um, my other Iraqi friends talked me out of it. Mm. And um, I guess, yeah, they were also worried about implications for them. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's a very complicated situation. And that's, I guess, one reason that I sort of wrote this book is looking at questions that I didn't get answers to that maybe I wasn't brave enough to ask at the time. Or maybe I didn't want to know at the time. Um, and I think, you know, probably a lot of novelists start writing because they want to answer questions that they don't get answers for in your, in real life. Because, yeah. you know, one thing I found, you know, moving from being a journalist to a novelist is that, uh, sometimes I'd try and put events from my real life into the book and they would seem completely unbelievable. I'd read it and I'd go, no one is going to believe that happened, even though it did. Mm -hmm. And that's because real life is uh, so much messier mm. than fiction. There was some uh, very wise person once said that uh, fiction is the truth that reveals, the, the lie that reveals the truth. Mm. And I think that's why people are still so drawn to books because they can help us make sense of things. They can give us the ability to step into someone else's shoes, someone that we might not normally have the chance to even meet mm -hmm. and um, look at it through their eyes. And I really hope that's something that people get out of this book. It's told from, you know, the perspective of three very different women. Mm -hmm. And I really hope people think, you know, well, if I was in that situation, what would I have done? And, you know, I think um, personally I probably would have done many um, similar things to the character that is the informant. Wow. You've lived in all these different places and your husband from Canada, somewhat similar to the United States in a way, I would say probably the closest you could find in a lot of respects. Was there a lot of cultural differences that were difficult for him to um, figure out when you moved to Iraq? Or I was wondering if maybe some of the other places you've lived in your life may have helped you when it came to the cultural differences. By the time you moved there, you might have found it was easier to adapt. And I'm curious from the perspective of a Canadian what it was like to move there. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, he comes from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, so it is plenty cold up there. Mm -hmm. uh, that is just above North Dakota. Um, so I guess the heat, <laughs> the unrelenting heat, he's not good <laughs> in, in the heat. And there was certainly a lot of that in Baghdad. But um, I think you'll find Canadians are very diplomatic people. Um, and he certainly needed that over there, um, you know, given the complex situation that we were in sort of um, heading towards a war with the United mm -hmm. States. There was a lot of tension. Um, but he has also moved around a lot. He uh, moved around. He moved from Canada to Australia and Australia to Thailand and then Thailand to um, Iraq. So he is used to moving about in different cultures and he is um, actually a very kind and nice person. So mm -hmm. he, uh, he's much more of the diplomat um, between the two of us than, uh, than I am. That's for sure. That's, yeah. that's one big difference, I'd say, between Australians and Canadians. Um, Australians are very much um, tell it like it is. Oh, sure. Uh, sort of warts and all. And I think the Canadians are much more diplomatic. You know, uh, this is another strange, silly, stupid question, but I, I feel the urge to just ask you, well, you, so you learn about uh, your friend being an informant at the time you're living in Iraq. Did you ever think to yourself, 
what if my husband's an informant? Or did you ever think yeah. like, who else could be an informant in my life? I mean, just did you have that sort yeah. of mindset that if, if she could be, anyone else could be? Yeah, well, I definitely um, thought that other people could be informants. Um, not my husband, <laughs> but I think it probably would have been pretty difficult for him to pull that off. Um, but uh, I definitely thought about it. You know, it, I'll tell you a bizarre story. I think the, um, the Iraqi government definitely thought we could be um, – you know, potentially more than we were. Yeah. We were sitting at, when you rent a home in Iraq, it comes with everything, like down to the teaspoons. And so we had a house um, full of uh, various things, including um, a lot of those tiny little coffee cups that um, Iraqis drink coffee out of, and mm -hmm. then two huge coffee mugs, sort of Western-style coffee mugs. And one said happy birthday and one said Merry Christmas, and we used to drink our coffee out of those. And one day we're sitting there, it's a Sunday um, and my husband lifted up his mug. I was sitting directly across from him and the bottom of it came off and inside it was a tiny speaker and a whole <gasps> bunch of wires. Whoa. And I was just like, oh, I pointed at it. He was still holding it on it in his hand and it's, the bottom sort of came away <laughs> and we, we rushed to the bathroom. There wasn't time to go for our special walks. We rushed to the bathroom. We turned on the shower. We turned on the um, faucet. We turned on the exhaust fan and whispered in each other's ears, oh, my goodness, it's, it's, a, it's a bug. Yeah. And so we uh, went into the UN and they said, right, we finally got proof. We knew it. Uh, they gave us a camera because that was another thing you weren't allowed to have in uh, Baghdad. They said, take this camera home and take some photos. So we did that. The next day, the very next day, I got a call from my landlord. She said, I'd like to come over and talk to you about the contents of the house. And I was like, okay, because I'd contacted her recently. You get this long inventory of um, items in your house mm -hmm. and there were things on there that hadn't been on there when we'd moved in and I just wanted to get that sorted. And I said, okay. And she turned up and the first thing she said to me was, uh, let, let's look in the cupboards. And she went straight to the cupboard where we kept the mugs. Mm -hmm. And she said, where, where are the large mugs? And I'd actually already broken one and thrown it away. And I said, why? And she says, well, those mugs are very special. And I said, okay. I said, uh, you know what? Let's go outside because <laughs> mm -hmm. I didn't want to have this conversation. We went outside and I said, look, I know what's going on. I know it's not your fault. I probably, I know they probably, you know, you had to let them into the house, but, you know, just don't hassle me about the mugs. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I said, look, I know what's going on. I know they're listening to us. I know they put a, a bug in the mug. And she said, <laughs> a bug in the mug. She said, no, my dear, that is a, a joke thing. She said, it's a novelty gift. You lift them up. When I bought them 20 years ago, they used to play Merry Christmas or Happy Birthday. What? And I was like, oh, and I was so embarrassed. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And we went back in the house and she was there with her son, her adult son. Mm -hmm. And she walked over to him. She whispered in his ear. And they went by and they left and I never saw them again. Weird. Okay. So yeah. what a, what a and way I'm to sure try to cover. I'm pretty sure she was whispering in his ear, the house is bugged. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, um, or she, wait. You know, so you believed her. See, I'm too paranoid. I wouldn't have believed her. I, no, said, oh, I, what belie I believe the, the mug was a novelty gift. Looking back, it, it did say happy birthday and Merry Christmas. And I have seen those mugs. You sort of pick them up and they play a yeah. tune. Oh, I get that. And, you know, we've just been washing them in the sink. I'm sure that stopped working. Yeah. But, um, well, she, you know, Shia was obviously, well, see, uh, you, you know, reminded of the fact that they were probably listening. Yeah. And she didn't want to have a conversation about potential 
bugs and listening to bison. Oh, I get it. Well, you, you know, yeah. your book is When the Apricots Bloom. It's, it's doing so well and selling so well. Your follow-up could be a children's book called A Bug in the Mug. <laughs> it yeah, would also right. sell so good. All right. Do you mind holding on after the break? I'd love to keep talking about your time in Iraq. This is great. Sure. Uh, journalist, author, and former foreign correspondent, Gina Wilkinson, GinaWilkinson.net. You can find her online with her latest book, When the Apricots Bloom. This is Overnight America, KMOX. You can find her online, GinaWilkinson.net, and her latest book, When the Apricots Bloom, uh, a novel on there. And, I mean, getting a lot of great reviews. Gina, live from Australia, you're spending time with us from the future. Thank you for doing this tonight. Yeah, thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here in Australia's um, Friday afternoon. Isn't that great? I know. Soon it'll be our Friday afternoon. And I'll think, um, you know, on my time off, the first thing I think of is I want to hop on a Zoom and talk to another country. Uh, But that never happens to me. You get uh, all these people, I'm sure, across the world that want to talk to you about your experiences and your book. And congratulations on all this uh, success. Oh, thank you so much. So I wanted to ask you, uh, living in Iraq, you move there, your husband working for UNICEF, and then right around the same time, we start to see the conflict with the United States. Uh, Soldiers start to come up. And I'm curious because here in American television and news, we had a lot of the different visuals. We saw, you know, uh, the people ripping down the Saddam Hussein statues. We saw, you know, explosions and all of these things play out on our television set. Were you there for all of it? Did you get to witness any from your vantage point? Well, actually, I was um, evacuated from Baghdad during the um, the shock and awe uh, campaign. Mm-hmm. So I actually went to Turkey and worked out of Turkey for um, a couple months. And then I went back to Baghdad yeah. uh, as a journalist um, after the war. You know, under Saddam Hussein, I hadn't been allowed to practice the craft of um, journalism. Mm-hmm. So I went back there as um, a, a journalist afterwards. But I wasn't there for that initial part Mm -hmm. um but you know the period afterwards it was quite difficult um well you know it was actually really really dangerous there was a lot of uh suicide bombings uh foreigners being kidnapped and uh you know murdered and so it was a very um hazardous environment that's for sure Mm, it was really terrible and given that time and the way the internet culture and everything was people were posting those terrorist videos online and it was really a weird time um did you see u.s soldiers on the ground did you come across foreign soldiers oh yeah yeah what was it like often i went uh yeah i went to um briefings you know a couple times a week um in the green zone with the u.s military and um i went on various um expeditions with different um military forces the australians the british and the americans um so yeah we had a lot of um contact, uh, just doing my job as a correspondent, uh, you know, the American military or the coalition was in effectively in control of Iraq at that time. So, um, you know, I guess we were, um, there to get, get the truth out about what was happening on the ground. But certainly I met, um, a lot of, um, American soldiers from all different, um, backgrounds, many who had been, uh, you know, called up to fight who had been, you know, living civilian lives prior to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I met, I remember um, one guy worked on a radio station, mm. <laughs> uh, you know, so all different um, uh, people from all different walks yeah. of life in America there. Well, in Baghdad, and you knew the people, even though some of them were hesitant to know you personally, but what was the word on the street? What did they think about the soldiers that were there in Baghdad at the time? And uh, what was the interactions between them and the soldiers? Was it uh, mostly positive or was it uh, problematic? 
Well, you know, I think Iraqis did want to be free of Saddam Hussein, um, but they also didn't want to be ruled by outsiders. And I think one of the big missteps, I feel, was... um, in the very first days after the fall of Saddam Hussein, there was a huge amount of rioting and looting. And uh, I think it was Donald Rumsfeld at the time just said, oh, well, they're just letting off steam. And the Iraqis, I think, wanted the American military as the new powers in that Mm. situation to step in and stabilise the situation. And there was sort of a a bit of a power vacuum Mm. and you saw all sorts of... um, terrorists from outside Iraq coming into um, Iraq during that period. And I just feel like those first months, it was almost a bit too much hands-off. I think, you know, before the war, I remember my Iraqi friends saying to me, you know, if a bomb falls on my house, well, that's that's the way it was meant to be. That's the will Mm. of God. But what I'm worried about, this is what they would say to me, is what some Iraqis might do when there's no longer anyone in power. Because, you know, when you're in a dictatorship, you are so repressed. There's so much bubbling under the surface that when that suddenly disappears, it is going to be chaos. Um, And so I think there were a few missteps there that sort of set it along a path that didn't end up being positive. But, you know, I'm not really a a pro-war person, Mm. but uh, before the war, you know, I actually was in favour of America, um, you know, military intervention. I didn't believe there were weapons of mass destruction. I mean, Saddam Hussein could not get the traffic lights fixed, let alone run some sophisticated weapons program. But the people were so oppressed and his control was so absolute, I didn't see a way out for them. So I was sort of hoping that, you know, it'll be a short, sharp war mm-hmm. and then things will change. But, of course, it wasn't a short, sharp war and we're still, you know, dealing with the after effects of that 20 years later. Yeah, wow. You're right about when leaders fall and how that could have unintended consequences. Like with Saddam Hussein, the interesting thing was during that time, uh, we we come back and we look and we're able to digest and research and figure out what was really going on behind the scenes. But then we repeated the problem with Gaddafi after, you know, maybe five or 10 years later, whatever it was. And we saw how that just unstabilizes and brings in all kinds of bad actors. And you get to see that firsthand. It's amazing that the people that live there could recognize that, how much more dangerous it could be. And it's weird to think if you're under this certain amount of control, maybe it's just because the, did they have access to media from outside of Iraq? Do they know what life is like or are they just so controlled that they they just don't really know what it's like to live any other way besides a dictator? Well, um, you know, there wasn't any foreign um, media in um, Iraq under Saddam Hussein. It was all, if you turn on the TV, it was every channel. It was Saddam Hussein marching, saluting, firing his hunting rifle, you know, mm-hmm. it was it was 24-hour Saddam show. Um, but Iraqis, um, you know, actually had a period, and this also is um, part of my, my book, in the 1960s and the 1970s, you know, everybody knows about Iraq's amazing ancient past. You know, mm-hmm. they invented the wheel, they invented the first legal system, the first written language, the plough. Um, but in the 60s and 70s, that was another, you know, crucial period for Iraq. It's what Iraqis called the golden years. And at that time, 
Iraq was one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, it had uh, nightclubs, cafes, tourists from all over the world came there. There was a huge expat population, um, British people, uh, French, a lot of Americans, especially in the oil business, lived there, and um, a lot of women working as nurses and um, teachers. And one of the characters in my book, her mother had been a nurse in um, Iraq during that, that that period of the golden years. And Iraqis at that time were very um, well connected with the outside world. Um, many of my um, slightly older friends had um, studied abroad. They spoke perfect English. In fact, they spoke many languages, often French, English, Arabic, um, maybe Italian. Uh, so they, you know, the older generation was very um, highly educated. Uh, Iraq had one of the highest rates of education, including for women mm-hmm. in the Middle East. Um, and they were very much exposed to to international culture and contributing to that. And then with the rise of Saddam Hussein um, that began in the, in the 1970s and then really took hold in the 1980s when the war with Iran began, that's when things began to reverse for, um, you know, the, the fate of Iraq. And in my book, I show how a lot of people in Iraq, you know, still think back to that, that golden the golden years yeah. and, you know, held on to hope that somehow Iraq would regain its former glory. You know, wow. they're very patriotic people. They love their country just like anybody else. Um, but I guess there was a real difference between the very young people who had grown up entirely under Saddam Hussein and older people who had had a very, very different, much more cosmopolitan, uh, much more connected um, life uh, and experience growing up. Wow. Uh, We have to take one more break in GinaWilkinson.net. You can find her online. Her book, When the Apricots Bloom, will continue on Overnight America KMOX. So one more segment with journalist, author, and former foreign correspondent, Gina Wilkinson, uh, ginawilkinson.net. You can find her online in her new book, When the Apricots Bloom. Great success there. And uh, I think the only thing you haven't been on is Oprah. So hopefully that'll be next for you, Gina. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll see if I can fit it into my schedule. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> yeah. So many uh, amazing stories from your own experience. And you start to write these and, and uh, you know, reflect on some of the things in your life. And then you make it into it's like a his, it's historical fiction. And so many people love this type of genre, and no wonder why your book is doing so well, getting all kinds of picks online and uh, book clubs and things like that. One more time, if people wanted to look for your book, When the Apricots Bloom, where can they find it? Uh, they can get it uh, on Amazon. It was Target's Book of the Month, so you can definitely get it there. In May, it will be Costco's Book of the Month. Um, it's not in Costco yet, but it will be in May. Um, you can get it at your local bookstore. If they don't already have it on the shelf, just ask them. They can get it in Barnes & Noble, uh, pretty much anywhere you go. You should be able to get a copy. When was the last time you sweeped your house to see if there was a bug in it? <laughs> Well, I am in Australia, so um, the, the sort of bugs we would be talking about would be of the, the eight-legged variety, not, not of the, uh, the mechanical yeah. sort. But I actually did do that one day in Baghdad. I was feeling very paranoid, and um, I actually took things off the wall and, you know, yeah, looked in different light sources. Uh, you know, a bug has to have a power source, so I was looking at the, you know, parts of the TV and taking light 
globes out of things and um, yeah it, it was a, it was ripe for paranoia yeah i was gonna say dead. like in today's world with with uh, all the electronics with the cameras and the audio in them it's like we're basically thinking if you were living at that time in iraq and all of that technology was available they would have had no problem getting information yeah, from yes. you hacking right in so uh, I, siri siri could have done the job yeah, yeah. <laughs> live from australia this past hour you spent uh, and, and shared so many great stories with us here in st louis missouri gene wilkinson.net gina wilkinson in her book when the apricots bloom thank you so much for coming on and joining us on overnight america oh my absolute pleasure ryan anytime super duper fascinating story loved it so much we're going to take a look at uh, the news coming up after the break she joins us on the bomberito automotive group guest line this is overnight america kmox tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone news in order to secure convictions in a court of law it is essential that we conclusively sports that clock at four Donchich. the step back three you bet. music you set my world on fire and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's better over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. A left 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months.